Amen. Well, I think a guy like Peter probably would have prayed that prayer more than once in his life. Just a closer walk with thee. This morning we start uh, our summer series called Unfiltered. Uh, this Today's sermon title is called Unfiltered Hope, but the series itself is the word unfiltered. Because if you know anything about this disciple named Peter, uh, he, and maybe you can relate to this or know people that can relate to this like your pastor, but might speak sometimes first and think later, or might act first and then realize later, oops, maybe I moved too quickly. Peter was a man that was passionate, that was eager to go full speed toward whatever he might be chasing. But long before he became Peter, he was known as Simon, among other names, and he was a simple fisherman. And like every uh, Jewish person at the time, they were awaiting the Messiah. And I thought, well, how do I paint a picture of that that we understand this morning? And, and what I wanted to do is I wanted to start by saying, imagine 52 years. For some of you, you're at that point or beyond, so it's easy to imagine the span of life that spans 52 years. You're with me. For others, maybe you don't, but you know that that either seems really old or that you're getting there awfully quickly or that that's concerning. But whatever the case, imagine waiting for something for 52 years. And each year... As the winter rolls around and things get going, you begin to try to muster up hope that maybe this is the year. Or as summer gets into full season, maybe this will be the time. Or as the fall comes, maybe, probably not because they're the worst, but maybe this is the time. And you begin to ask the question, how long will we have to wait? You see, when I was 10 years old, I moved to a city that was known as the mistake on the lake. It's true, if if you look. And for 52 years, these people have been waiting for someone to usher in a new kingdom, a kingdom that marks them not being losers. Because for 52 years, every endeavor they have made in the sporting world, and we're Americans, we love our sports, we have failed. Every single time. We are 0 for over 200 seasons worth of sports. And then, as fate would have it, we were able to draft a young man that lived merely 30 miles from the mistake on the lake, that had grown up playing, that had grown up having an entire city and state. Watch him. States are like districts here. Everybody kind of follows together. But then one fateful day after a few seasons of futility of when they failed time and again, he took his talents to a place called South Beach. And he went and he played for another team. And after winning with them and further crushing the hearts of the locals, he announces much better the second time that he's coming home. And his first season, you know, things went okay. But then this year, things started to go a little differently. People dared hope. 
But unfortunately, there was this young guy out in the West Coast that seemed intent on becoming the greatest of all time. And he was going to do everything in his power to lead these people toward the West Coast, toward the Golden State. And as he led them, he led them to this amazing record. And as they chased record after record, they beat the great ones, his airness's record of wins in the regular season. And they were shattering everything. They were, everyone was saying, probably the best of all time. And they made their way, these two teams, to the playoffs. And it looked like a battle of epic proportions was coming. And as the finals started, the mistake on the lake dared hope. We were rested. We were healthy. We were ready. And we blinked and we were losing 3-1. They only had to win one game. And yet again, our hopes would be dashed. Yet again, we would be devastated and known as the mistake on the lake. The land that is cursed. The people that have no hope. Really, they should just shovel snow. That's what they're good at. But the king stepped up. And in two straight games, he took over with his friend. And he scored 41 points. And miracle upon miracle began to happen. It went from three games to one to three games to two. (gasps) And the mistake on the lake dared to say, maybe this is it. Maybe. Because no team had ever in the history of the National Basketball Association come from three games to one down to win a championship. But the king was playing. And it became three games to two. And all of a sudden... The final game, it was three games to three in the city dares hope once again after suffering loss upon loss for 52 years. The game goes through three and a half quarters of tight basketball. I know this is very important. And the score is tied with just a few moments left and no team could score. The score was tied at 89. I remember I was watching with my parents via Skype. It was a tense morning, very tense for my poor mother. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you see the king running toward the opponent's basket, jumping higher than any human should be able to jump and blocking the ball that would have likely been the game-winning basket. Just a short moment later, his teammate goes down, shoots, and everything changes. It went from how long would we wait to the king had arrived. And the mistake on the lake is now known as the city of champions. My hometown of many, I know nobody knows where I'm from, it's confusing. But where I lived the longest before Hong Kong was Cleveland, Ohio. And for 52 years, we have been waiting for a championship. Our Browns, if you know anything about American football, are hopeless. In fact, they're so bad, they left at one point. Our Indians in the 90s had every chance. They were winning. They only had to get three outs in a baseball game, and they would win. And even better, a local boy, my friend, was on that team, and they lost. 52 years we have been waiting. And my mom went to all my sporting events. 
She cheered for me loudly and proudly, and I have never seen my mom cheer like she did at Game 7 on Monday night, Monday morning in Hong Kong time. And she had bronchitis, which I think she shared with me via the internet. But here's the thing. We got so excited because the championship was ours. Hope had been restored to a people that were cursed. And that was a stupid basketball game. And by the way, Cleveland rocks. And don't you dare talk about Steph Curry and and, uh, the Golden State Warriors with me because I will not listen. He's a good man, don't get me wrong. He's great. But here's my point. That was 52 years. An entire city went crazy. Two million people squeezed into a city roughly that could hold where Wam Po and maybe Hong Hum could. And they all just wanted a piece of the king. Over 400 years of silence for the people of Israel between the end of the Old Testament and when John the Baptist begins preaching. And a man named Andrew, if you turn in your Bibles and you looked at John chapter 1 toward the end, a man named Andrew begins to listen to this John guy, this John the Baptizer, not King James. And Andrew, as he hears John the Baptizer preaching and teaching, he'd become one of his followers, one of his disciples. But John the Baptizer then points him to one who's bigger. If you open up to John chapter 1, listen to what is said here. John's disciples followed Jesus. The next day, John was there again and saw two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God, there's the king you've been waiting for. The Jewish people would have known exactly what John the baptizer was saying. Now, some got confused, the Pharisees and Sadducees among them, and they didn't understand. But when the two disciples heard this, they turned around and they followed him. And they said, What do you want? And he said, come and you will see. And then you go down to verse 40. And one of the two that were there, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had seen, had said, and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Imagine something you'd waited for beyond your whole life. Your people had been waiting for centuries, wondering if maybe at this point, had we misread? Had we misunderstood? Had we misheard? And what do you do but dare hope that this time things could be different? My people of Cleveland dared hope that this time things could be different. And finally, after 52 years, they were. But that's nothing compared to the surpassing greatness that is Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh, making his dwelling among us and introducing himself to Andrew. And Andrew goes and gets his brother, at this point known as Simon. And what does Simon do? Well, if you flip back to Matthew chapter 4, we're given a different account of the calling of the disciples. And in this account, we see the first interaction between uh, 
between Jesus and Simon himself. And, and look at what happens here. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into, uh, into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And it's a great play on words that every pastor throughout all time in the English language has said, Peter went from being a fisherman to a fisher of men. Just like that. Because what do we read next that Peter did? At when? Later on, after their affairs were in order and after they made sure everything was secure and everything was comfortable and everything was perfect, later on, they went. No, Sydney got it. At once, they left their nets and followed him. It gives us a key into the life of Peter, just a clue of to who this man might be. You see, I want to introduce you this morning to Peter, and we're going to look at him as a man of hope and optimism, and then we're going to look also at how the Gospels teach us, you know, the Gospel that's connected with uh, the eyewitness account of Peter giving it to suspect many suspect that he gave an eyewitness account to a guy named mark and that mark then wrote it mark's really hard on peter and many think that that's because peter was so hard on himself so willing to admit all of his flaws whereas matthew and john and even luke tend to be much more of showing the process of peter growing from failure to failure yet in the process growing to trust in jesus christ to the point where he became the one upon which the church is built. Now, our foundation, our cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Don't misunderstand. But the guy that God used to start that process was the man called the rock. Notice that is not Dwayne Johnson. Some of you know who the rock is in the movies today. Uh, If you don't, that's fine. You can IMDB it later. But Peter was the real rock. He had so many names, it can be hard to keep up with who he is. Peter was one name, Simon was another, Cephas was another. But when you're growing up in a time when you might speak Aramaic or Greek, it can be tough. And Peter likely spoke both. And so, not only that, but as we'll look at in a separate sermon, Jesus gave him a new name and looked at the man that had impetuously disappointed Jesus and impetuously disappointed himself and spoken out of turn and made things worse than they need to be. Can any of you relate to that? No, liars. We all can in some ways. We make things worse the minute we step in front of God's plan. And Peter was a pro at that. So are we. Either he was running ahead or moving behind. You know, when Jesus rose again victoriously, we're told that The beloved disciple waited, and Peter took off. Peter was the one running in. Who cares about whether I'm going to be unclean or not? I'm going. I'm checking this out. That was Peter. Peter was the one that I bet was daring Andrew and the others. Come on, let's go. He was an impetuous person. He would jump first and ask, is the water going to be cold later? Oh, yeah, that's another illustration. Because he got out of the boat, and he started walking. And it wasn't until he looked down that he was like, oh, what did I do? That's Peter. That's this man full of great passion, full of great faith, and also full of great failures. You see, as I introduce Peter, I want to introduce us to ourselves. 
in saying that regardless of what you've done or where you are in your life, God is not done with you. Your failures do not define you. The love of Christ in you, the hope of glory, defines you. If you would but turn to him and say, my life is yours. Peter failed more than any of us would like to admit. He was the guy that was known as the spokesperson for the disciples. Yet he denied Christ three times. The spokesman, some say he was the leader of the disciples in one, chief among equals, much like our elders are structured together. So if I'm the spokesman for our elder board today, and I denied Christ three times, I would be seen in a different light. Peter was the spokesman that had walked with the Messiah, denied him. Then, even though he had a vision from heaven of invite and go kill and eat and make nothing unclean, hang out with the Gentiles, did it for a little while, then got uncomfortable, afraid what, get this, others might think, and backed off. And I want you to imagine, as I give you snapshots of Peter's life, imagine being a guy named Paul, newer in the faith, having to explain to everyone that you are a true apostle, but you didn't walk with Jesus at the same time. In fact, at that point, you were, you know, kind of persecuting the followers of the way. And you've got to go confront Peter, the rock, and say, dude, you're wrong. Imagine what that must have been like for both of these men that shaped what the church is today. Peter could have responded like many of us when we were told we're wrong, out of anger, rebellion, and given up. But that's not at all what we see when we read through that. And again, we'll talk about these circumstances in greater detail as we progress through this summer. But I want you to see a picture of a man of great passion, but also a man of great humility a man that understood much of what our world is facing today. What do I mean? Well, last week I told you that we are now in what I call and many others are calling post-Christendom, where for a long period of time, roughly 15 to 1800 years, we've enjoyed favor as Christians by and large over leadership. Governments have been structured with biblical morals in place. Um, Leaders have sought to, to at least on the forefront, say they believe in the word of God is the ultimate absolute uh, truth. And that is changing. Uh, We're back to times where persecution is growing and increasing, where people are left more and more displaced. We just heard uh, from Andy about what it's like in, in the refugee setting just in Syria alone. There are more refugees today in the world than at any other time in human history. And as we talked about even last year, as we looked at the sojourner, remember that? We talked about refugees. We, the church, are to be on the front lines helping them. And this guy, Peter, was shaping what the church would look like as a people that care for the least of these. So much that he said, don't worry about your citizenship. Your citizenship, you're aliens in this world. Go love and care for those in need. Peter was living at a time where the persecution was in the pre-Christian days. People didn't know what to do with Christians. People didn't understand what they were saying and why would they act this way? Much like what we heard just a few moments ago. Why would Christians that we're supposed to hate be loving us? 
well, why are these Christians saying these things that don't make sense, that are revolutionary? How different is that from how we're supposed to be living today when the world says, chase money, success, power ourselves, and we're saying there's a better way. There's a way full of hope. There's a way full of purpose that's bigger than ourselves. And the world doesn't always understand that. And so I believe as Peter had the chance to reflect at the end of his life, he looked with equal parts hopefulness and optimism and reality of what the church would face. It's why you find in both of his letters an emphasis on what I call hopeful suffering. And it's why our series is called Unfiltered. Because Peter didn't run away from the reality that as the church, we will struggle, suffer, and face hard times if we're doing it right. He wasn't afraid to admit that that was what was coming because he was living proof of that. He had been tortured. He'd been struggled. He'd been put in prison. He knew what it meant to suffer. And he knew that followers of the way would time and again be misunderstood because not everyone would understand what it means to follow the Messiah and their king. So what would a guy like this write as he's looking back, as he's trying to prepare the church to go out and live as Jesus would have us live? His eyes were never taken off the kingdom of heaven. His eyes were never off the person of Jesus Christ. And he never wanted the church to let go of that. He never once believed, I don't see anywhere in scripture where he said that there was a succession plan that it went from the Messiah to Peter. That's not what happened. He was merely an apostle, a disciple, one that got to speak into people's lives saying, this is Jesus, get to know him. And so at the end of his ministry season, what does he do? Well, he writes, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Remember that guy he dared hope for at the beginning of his ministry that Jesus says, come on, follow me. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Now, Peter is saying, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Messiah. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. He's given us new life into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Peter saying, yeah, I'm an eyewitness. I was there. This is true. Into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He will go on in his letter to say, get ready for suffering, Persevere in trials and stand firm in the truth that is Jesus Christ. But right now, he's starting with giving glory to whom glory is due, and he's hopeful. Why do I say all that? Because I think the church is in danger of becoming so pessimistic that we don't believe God can still be at work. We believe we had made such a mess of things that finally, once and for all, things are irredeemable, that there's no hope. Now, maybe we wouldn't say that out loud, but as Jesus told the disciples, oh, you of little faith, 
maybe our actions are showing our lack of faith, our lack of hope. Maybe our despondency at the world around us is showing that we don't believe God could somehow work in the midst of such great hurt, suffering, pain, injustice, poor treatment, fill in the blank. And we begin to lose hope because we begin to believe that it's about us and that it's not fair. And while, yes, we empathize with one another and we should and we want justice done, we have to remember ultimately what justice is about. And it's about what Jesus did on the cross. He brought others to himself by bearing our sins so that we might become the righteousness of God, rising victoriously over death, in sin once for all into an inheritance that has us adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. Whatever your last name is, that counts while you're here on earth, but for all eternity, your last name is son or daughter of God. How amazing is that? How cool is that? When I think about inheritance, my inheritance ended up being some books from my dad. Great. I'm very happy with that, by the way. I like books. But I'm not going to end up with a big inheritance in, in the earthly thought of it. And that's just fine. However, I'm looking forward to treasures in heaven that last for all eternity. So as we think about this idea of our living hope, what does Peter point us to? Well, he does a few things. First, he says, your hope is not found in you. Okay? You, by nature, if you make Hong Kong your home, are, statistically speaking, the highest IQ'd people anywhere in the world. Pat yourselves on the back. You're the smartest people in the world. That cannot save you. Sorry. Education will not save you. Now, I support you as teachers. Please keep educating my children. Please keep working hard to raise us as good thinkers, as good reasoners, as good students of the world around us. But... We cannot place our hope in education. We cannot place our hope in fill in the blank with whatever you'd like to place your hope in, LeBron James. Now, he did just win me a national or a NBA title, and I'm very happy if you've noticed my Facebook feed this week. My hope isn't found in a man that is temporal. Because LeBron James will likely retire in a couple of years. And the world will go on. And it might be another 50 years before Cleveland wins a title. But the victory over sin and death is secured for all eternity. That battle never has to be fought again. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. When we get despondent, when we really wrestle with the circumstances of life, I wonder if our pessimism and our despondency is because we keep thinking that we deserve more and that we've somehow placed our hope in ourselves or in what we expect of other people. And I know that's a hard question, but Peter right off the bat is saying, we've been born again into a living hope with God the Father through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, 
God became man and made his dwelling among us who knew no sin, who walked this earth perfectly, bore our sins and rose victoriously over death. And then what does he do? He says, come on, I've got you. I will carry you through. I am all you need. The amazing worship leader this morning reminded us that Christ is enough. Do we believe it? When we lay out our life, and we're looking at massive decisions, bills here, money here, relationship broken, decisions unfathomable. Is Christ enough? And then Peter goes on to say, okay, well, if you get that first part, if you have made Christ your hope in everything, we progress. Because Christ has given us hope that comes with an inheritance an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, that is kept safely by God for his people, with the power of God. Remember the verses we read to start this morning, or I read to you and you pronounced his love endures forever? Well, how long is forever? Forever. It never ends. And what did God do? Miraculous things. He hung the stars. He made this world. He created you and me fearfully. He did all of these things on purpose. And it is his power that created all of this that has you and says your hope is in him. Through Jesus Christ and his miraculous work, he says you can trust me. You don't have to figure this out on your own. You've got an inheritance with me. Now, we think of inheritance as stuff kind of these days, right? Either that or, you know, um, money to pay for things. But back then, a, a scholar that actually just passed away last year wrote it this. He says, to have something as an inheritance then indicates that we are already named in the will as those who are appointed to inherit it. And thus, in a sense, our name is already on it. Peter is underlining the fact that the content of living hope is already destined for us. Our hope is already secure. Jesus already wins. Yeah. Jesus has already defeated sin. Jesus has already defeated hopelessness. Jesus has already defeated your circumstances and says, trust in me. And I will work. Peter, the man that tried to trust and then failed, that tried to do it the right way, then would fail. He got this and he's pointing us to that inheritance because finally he got it to the point where he said, I better write this down because maybe I'll forget again. I love that about Peter because we can learn so much because he failed, but he kept going. It wasn't stopped when he failed. He would press on. So first, we know that we've got this inheritance. In the New Testament, it conveys the idea also of a promised land prepared for his people. Yes, this world is broken. Yes, the circumstances around you are uncertain. But our inheritance is not. We know the end of the book. We know how it turns out. A new heaven and a new earth will be brought together and we will worship at the feet of of our king, and we will no longer need the sun because of the glory of God will be with us. There will be no more night. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more death. Instead, our hope will spring eternal. And eternal is forever. 
You see, we keep thinking in those despondent moments that all that's in front of us is all there is. And Peter's saying, if you're suffering, if you're comfortable, don't get caught there. Keep looking and turn toward your eternal inheritance that will never perish. What does it mean it'll never perish? It means it is impervious toward corruption. You and I may sin today. It's a reality of life. To go along with the illustration I used last week, you may go 75 and a 70 if you're driving a car. Or you may not wait for that little green man to start flashing and cross the street. (gasps) You mean I dared talk about jaywalking in Hong Kong? Yeah, I did. We know the law, but yet we break it. But you see, the inheritance that we have with God is incorruptible. It will never be soiled. It will never be dirtied. And our place in it is secure. Why? Because we've been washed by the blood of the Lamb and our righteousness is His and it's covering us. It's covering up our filth and our dirt, which puts us to the next one. It will never spoil because it's free from stain. It is a clean hope. Hope in ourselves means we're destined to fail. Self-sufficient hope leads to destruction. Would you like to look through human history to see how that works time and again? History points to time and again of errors of succession where leaders and empires fall because they get too big for their own britches, we would say, in America. Now, there's obviously more that goes into geopolitics than that one sentence I just stated. But at the end of the day, humanity fails. God never does. His inheritance for us is eternal, imperishable, unspoiled, and it does not fade. Its quality and its beauty will never be tarnished. Why? Because it's pointing to the very glory of God. It's pointing to who God is. So when we face life these days, what do we do? How do we live with hope? Well, first, let's start with what Peter started with. Let's identify that affection of our heart. Praise to the Lord. God the Father, through his Son, Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Peter was there for Pentecost living in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And where does he place his affections? Toward God, not toward himself, not toward the fact. Look, Jesus named me the rock. Yeah. If you remember, the rock is a wrestler. Remember, that's kind of how he carried himself, bigger than life. Peter was kind of the exact opposite. Humble. And honestly, he was one that would admit his frailties seemingly by how the accounts show him. But we identify the affection of our heart. Is Christ enough? The next question then is, look ahead to our eternal inheritance. Where are we investing? As of Friday morning our time, our world changed in ways we're not yet sure of, thanks to this wonderful thing called Brexit. Great Britain has begun the process of leaving the European Union. We don't know how things are going to turn out, 
But investors all over the world are wondering, what do we do? How is our money going to be secure when we don't know what this is going to look like in a year or two? Different parts of the UK are saying, it's not fair. We didn't want this, but we did and we did. And we're rushing to all these conclusions because people have invested so much into one system and the system is collapsing because it's a man-made system. But we look ahead to an eternal inheritance that isn't based on the decisions of man, but it's based on the glory of God. Then Peter invites us to rest in the power of God that's watching over us. Things might get worse. They often do. But can we find rest, O my soul, in our God and our King? How do we handle difficulty? We come to him and we say, here I am, Lord. I offer you nothing. I am poor and needy, but my hope is in you. Are we willing to put our hope in him and rest in him, trusting him with our circumstances, trusting him with our situations, trusting him with our comforts, knowing that he's got a better plan? And then finally, what do we do when that pain, that suffering, that disappointment comes? We persevere with purpose. I was talking with Andy this morning before church, and we both agreed uh, from what we're watching is it's it's an exciting time to be part of the church because as persecution increases, as the reins are tightened in certain parts of the world, we're seeing people have to decide for themselves, choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we're seeing Christians being separated, the wheat from the chaff and standing firm and saying, I am his. And they are persevering with purpose. And they are letting the world see that their hope is not in themselves, in their comfort, in their security. It is in the living Christ, the resurrected Savior, our Messiah. I cannot tell you what will happen next in your life. But I can assure you of an eternal destiny for you that gives you hope to face any and all situations. You know why I'm so confident of it? Because I have nothing to do with it. It is based solely on the power of our sovereign, holy, victorious God and King. Will we trust in Him with everything? Will we look forward to His return? And saying, my hope has always been in you, Lord. I will trust on you. As Asaph looked, he looked at the wicked and he says, it's not fair. But then I saw their state, then I saw their punishment. And I drew near and realized it is good to be near God. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. May we find hope today in the unfiltered power of our resurrected King. Let's pray. Worship team, we'll have you come up. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word that gives us hope in uncertain times. I thank you that we can trust you in all things, in all circumstances, for just such a time as this. Forgive us for acting out in anger 
acting out in despondency, acting out feeling that we have to fix it ourselves. Help us to trust in you and to go only where you lead. But Lord, may our hope be firmly in you. In your name I pray.